through 1804. Please join me in welcoming and thanking Alan for volunteering to speak today. Thank you very much, Amy. Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. Uh, so uh, Amy and others have been thanking me for volunteering for today, and I, I feel like I'm going to the front lines somewhere. <laughs> they seem to know something I don't about you. Uh, so it, it's wonderful to see such a full room. Uh, I'm wondering, is it possible to shut this door? There's a fair amount of noise coming th through there. That would be great. Thank you. Uh, one time I was um, invited to speak on the topic of the War of 1812, which apparently some people think is dull. And this was in Philadelphia, and the organizers had arranged a room that was about three times the size of this, in which 40 people showed up <laughs> and arranged themselves randomly <laughs> among about 800 seats. Uh, so this is going to be a lot easier. Uh, so I, I, I wrote a book called The Civil War of 1812, which was primarily about the American-Canadian borderland. And then I wrote a subsequent book, uh, which called The Internal Enemy, which is also about the War of 1812, but it's set in Virginia. And I'm going to speak about the Virginia dimension of that war today. And what I want to do is uh, just orient you uh, Often, if I'm speaking somewhere else, I have to point out where Chesapeake Bay is. I, I think I'm probably in a safe crowd here. But to just emphasize the difference between tidewater and the Piedmont, and of course UVA is in the Piedmont, and the War of 1812 affected directly the tidewater rather than the Piedmont. And the phenomena that I'm particularly looking at is the escape by approximately 3,000 enslaved people uh, running away to British warships during the war, and what difference that made. And I want to begin with one particular episode, which I think is very revealing, which happened in October of 1814. So this is the third year of the war. And it begins up at uh, Laidlow's Ferry on the Potomac River, just across from Maryland on the Virginia side, when three or four young African-American men stole a canoe. Now, this would be a dugout canoe. The dugout canoes were the primary mode for transportation in the tidewater. Roads were terrible. Water was everywhere. And it was just a lot easier to navigate the rivers and the creeks in these dugout canoes than it was to go overland. Now, by the third year of the war, most of these dugout canoes were locked up and often put under armed guard to prevent enslaved people from stealing those canoes and making their way to British warships, which were operating in Chesapeake Bay, starting in February of 1813. But somehow, these young men got this dugout canoe free from whatever lock was around it, and they crossed over to the Maryland side of the river. They went there because there was something they wanted. 
a ferry boat because they wanted a bigger craft that would be sufficient to load 17 people into. They somehow got that ferry boat free and took it back to the Virginia side and loaded up 17 people, men, women, and children, all of them enslaved. They then rowed this ferry boat down the Potomac River looking for a British warship. In the morning, their masters awoke to discover that these enslaved people were gone and that they, quote, had taken many articles out of Mr. Abraham Huey's house in the course of the night and all their own articles and effects out of their houses, end quote. Now, young white men then got into canoes and started paddling after them, but it was too late because the runaways had reached a warship. Now, I begin with this episode for a number of reasons, uh, in part because it's very revealing of the patterns of these escapes. First, this was not something spontaneous. This was something carefully planned, that they would get this dugout canoe, go to the other shore, get a ferry boat, come back, load everybody up, get stuff out of their own cabins, get something out of one of the master's houses, and do this all without waking anybody up. Very careful planning and leadership. Second, the assessment of these enslaved people, which was submitted by their owners, because their owners are seeking compensation from the government. And uh, they assess them at $8,000. And this puts them as above average in value of slaves in Virginia at that time. And indeed, they were disproportionately highly skilled. They were artisans and house servants, more than they were field hands. And this is also typical of these escapes, that they tend not to be the field hands, but they tend to be the artisans and the house slaves, who were people who were a bit better informed about the wider world and also considered by their masters to be, quote, the most trustworthy slaves. And so masters felt particularly betrayed when it was their more highly skilled slaves who ran away. They did not realize that it is those who have seen a bit more of what freedom's like who are the most likely to want freedom for themselves. Another factor in this is that they are overwhelmingly relatively young. The oldest was 35. They're in their late teens, they're in their 20s and early 30s. To embark on one of these escapes is physically strenuous. Older people tend not to do it. They will sometimes bring along very young children that they can carry with them in these boats. But it is mixed gender, it's not just men, but it's also women who are escaping. And that's the prime reason why they want the ferry boat, is to make it a bit easier so that women and children can go along on this escape. But older slaves will not be going. Now the other reason why I picked this particular escape is because there is a phenomenal letter that survives written by the leader of the escape. Now this 
comes as a surprise to people because we assume that enslaved people were all kept illiterate. And their masters usually tried to keep them illiterate, but in this period of time, before the 1830s, those masters often failed. This is a period of time in which most of the enslaved people have become Christians, and many of them want to be able to read the Bible. It's also the case that many masters want their most skilled slaves, those they consider the most trustworthy, to be able to keep accounts. Because remember that several of these slaves are blacksmiths and weavers, and they are working not just for their own master, but they are working for neighbors who are coming in and having business done. Now another feature of this particular escape is that they do not all come from one plantation. They come from four different farms. In Tidewater, by 1814, we have to set aside our classic image of antebellum slavery, of very large plantations with hundreds of slaves. Those are really phenomena of the Deep South. Large slaveholdings of 100-plus were very rare. They did happen. There was one quite close to us here at Monticello and a couple of others in Albemarle County. But in this particular county, Prince William County in Tidewater, as in most Tidewater counties by 1814, the large plantations have been broken up through division and inheritance, and it is much more common for enslaved people to live in groups of two, three, four, and five on plantations of two, excuse me, farms of 200 to 400 acres. Tidewater had become a relatively poor region after the American Revolution. And that had contributed to this process of dividing up the big, wealthy, old plantations and dividing up the slaves who used to live on those big plantations, some of whom are being sold to the Deep South, where cotton economy is much more thriving and booming. Others are being hired out or sold to neighbors. And so you've got a dispersion of the slave population. And that's relevant to the story, particularly to this escape, because the slaves are coming from four different properties. So we cannot think of the community of enslaved people as being bounded by a particular plantation. Husbands and wives, children and parents, friends live on different farms. How do they maintain ties with one another? Well, they do so on Sundays when they don't have to work, Saturday nights, and indeed any other night they can slip away. And so many people commented that people are slaves by day, and day went quite long, particularly in the summer. But slaves have a measure of freedom at night. And they are the experts at knowing all of the paths between their farms and plantations so that they can visit one another and maintain their sense of community with one another. So one of the things that these escapes reveals, like a flash of lightning, 
is what are the connections that enslaved people have beyond the farm they live in? Because when they escape, they tend to come from several places and cooperate in these escapes. Now let me go back to the leader of the escape, who belonged to Abraham Hoey. He was considered the highest value, in terms of the monetary value, assigned to him by his master, of the 17 who escaped. He's a blacksmith, so he must have been a very skilled man. To be a blacksmith requires great intelligence as well as strength, because you are manipulating hot metal, and it has to be done just right. So someone who has mastered this skill is going to be high value. Now, Shanklin's phenomenal, his name is Bartlett Shanklin, because five and a half years after the escape, he writes back to his master, his former master, Abraham Hoey. Shanklin is writing from Nova Scotia, which is where most of their escaped slaves settled after the war. Why Nova Scotia? It's a British colony. So the Royal Navy after they escape, after they help the British during the war, will take them to Nova Scotia and settle them usually in townships near Halifax, and especially in the township of Preston, which is where Shanklin's writing from. Now Shanklin is prospering, and he wants Huey to know it. <laughs> and I'm going to read the letter to you because it's one of the most remarkable documents that I've had the good fortune to find in an archive in my career. And when I first found it, I didn't quite know what to make of it, because I didn't expect to find a letter written by a former slave to his master after the war. Sir, I take this opportunity of writing these lines to inform you how I am situated here. I have a shop and set of tools of my own and am doing very well. When I was with you, you treated me very ill. And for that reason, I take the liberty of informing you that I am doing as well as you, if not better. <laughs> when I was with you, I worked very hard, and you neither gave me money nor any satisfaction. But since I've been here, I'm able to make gold and silver as well as you. The night that Coakley stopped me, he was very strong. But I showed him that subtlety was far preferable to strength, and brought away others with me who, thank God, are all doing well. So I remain, Bartlett Shanklin. <laughs> P.S., my love to all my friends, I hope they are doing well. <laughs> well, let me unpack this letter, um, because there's wonderful stuff in here. If you're trying to understand these escapes, if you're trying to understand the experience of being enslaved, and resisting slavery. This is one of the most phenomenal documents. To start with, he's proud of his ability to make money. 
And he understands that the culture, American culture, culture of Virginia in the early 19th century is one which measures people's success in terms of the money they make. And he's frustrated because as a slave, he's not able to make and keep his own money, that the master does that. Now, a reminder that the enslaved people of Virginia in 1814, almost none of them had been born in Africa. They were third and fourth generation Virginians. They spoke English. They spoke it just as well as their common white neighbors did. And they had absorbed a lot of the culture of being American, of being Virginian, including valuing making money and being frustrated when somebody else takes what you think is the fruits of your labor away from you. And he says he's become a better man. And I suspect it's because he's able to make his own money without holding somebody else in slavery. Now, part of it that's the most mysterious is the reference to Coakley. And I'm just guessing here because I don't know who Coakley was. But the most likely explanation is that Coakley was some overseer who would be a white man hired to keep an eye on the enslaved people and to keep them working and punish them if they didn't. Whoever Coakley was, he intervened somehow. And Coakley was a strong man. But somehow, Shanklin tricked him. We don't know how. And that's the reference saying subtlety is far superior to strength. Now, that's really the money quote in here because people who have examined the experience of slavery and people resisting being slavery have time and again found that enslaved people were at a disadvantage of strength in terms of the people who are watching over them are better armed. In most situations, there are more of them. Not in all situations. I'm talking about Virginia, where there is a majority of white people still. In this particular county, there's a majority of enslaved African Americans. But strength is on the side of the masters. They have the militia. They have the slave patrol. They have the guns. But enslaved people resist their situation by having to be clever and having to figure out how to evade the masters, how to trick them. And that is what Shanklin is proud of having done in securing this escape. Now, finally, how does this letter survive? There aren't a lot of letters written by enslaved people from this time that survive. We tend to have the letters of the rich and famous that survive, hundreds of them, but not of common white people and certainly not of enslaved people. This survives because this is worth $280 times 11 for Huey. Why is it worth that? Because after the war, a claims commission is set up to compensate masters whose slaves have gone, and they have to submit documentation to show that they hadn't simply gone off to the north, but they had gone to the British. So Shanklin doesn't know it, but he's helping Huey make money by providing documentation that the Huey slaves indeed are in Nova Scotia with the British. 
Now, this often raises a question with audiences. Well, how do we know who he didn't forge this? Well, at the end of the day, I can't guarantee that, but I have looked at things written by Huey, and this is not in his hand, and can also say that many of the sentiments expressed in here are not the things a master would ever imagine a former slave saying to the master. And other masters are able to get compensated without letters like this. So for all of these reasons, I think this is an authentic document. I have no other document that survives from Bartlett Shanklin to clinch the point, but I'm quite confident that this is an authentic document. Now, I've got about 10 more minutes that I want to devote to this talk. I just want to say what difference does it make that enslaved people escaped to the British? Well, the British, uh, this is a drawing that was done by a British admiral uh, showing this type of smaller boats that they are using as landing craft to go ashore in the tidewater. And you can see they often have a, a small cannon in the bow, and then there would be uh, sailors who are rowing it, and then there would be marines in the boats, and they would land, and then they would go, and they would make raids. Now, early in the war, the British naval commanders had strict orders from their superiors in government in Britain that they were only to encourage a very small number of enslaved people to run away to them. They were only to be men, young men, who could be useful as guides and pilots. Now, why are the British limiting uh, the receipt of runaways in this way. Well, they're, they're not to liberate slaves. That's not mission number one. The mission is to inflict as much damage on the economy of Virginia and Maryland as possible so that the United States will call off its war effort. The British hope they can do this quickly. And they don't want to have a lot of refugees to have to settle after the war because refugees cost money. They create difficulties for bureaucrats. So the British government says, get the few you need to help you know where you're going in these waters. Don't take any women and children. The problem is, in the course of 1813, about 600 runaways reached them, many of them women and children, and they are calling the bluff of these British naval captains. Will they send them back? Well, these naval captains decide they can't send them back. Well, why not? Well, part, some of them do have an empathy for these runaways, and they can well imagine what will happen to them if they're sent back. Another part of it is British officers had worked up a good sense of contempt toward Americans. And this happens in war. You tend to develop a real sense of animosity toward your enemy. And you are looking for reasons to think of your enemy as hypocrites. And they know that Americans like to speak a great deal about their freedom and their championing of liberty. 
And so that you have so many enslaved people trying to get away from the Americans is for the British the perfect riposte to Americans who are saying that they are the champions of liberty because the British believe they are the champions of liberty in the world. Now, why would they believe that? Because they're fighting Napoleon at the same time. And Napoleon is the great despot dominating Europe. So from the British perspective, the Americans have thrown a sucker punch at them when they were preoccupied fighting the great dictator of the world, Napoleon. And so they are very eager to find something, many things, in fact, wrong with Americans. And it is a very hard thing for human beings to resist the temptation to feel holier than thou. The British do not resist that temptation <laughs> presented to them by the runaway slaves. But there are other factors, too. Another is a lot of British sailors and Marines don't want to stay in the Royal Navy. They want to desert and become Americans. <laughs> It pays better to be a civilian in the United States, and the alcohol is a lot cheaper. <laughs> the food is a lot better. So British naval captains have a desertion problem. Anytime they land one of these boats, they have to watch their own men carefully to make sure they're not running away. So you're already shorthanded on these ships because they've been waging this global war against Napoleon who dominates Europe. The Brit Britain is a relatively small country with a massive navy of a thousand ships and almost all of them are shorthanded. So they can't afford to lose men. So then they're presented with people who want to run away to be on British ships. Can you really say no to them when you need their help? And then the final clincher. These are people who know the local landscape. They know all the creeks. They know all the paths. And they know how to go through them at night. They know the landscape intimately in ways their masters do not. So early in the war when the British do not have the assistance of these escaped slaves, they're literally lost when they're on land. They're nervous all the time that they're about to blunder into an ambush, and sometimes they did. So they're very reluctant to go into the woods. That switches around in 1814 when the British high command says, okay, you guys, you say you want the help of these people and you need to take their women and children in order to get the men to help you, you got the green light. Encourage as many of them to run away to you as possible and recruit the young men as Marines or to serve as guides and pilots, women to serve as nurses and as laundresses. And suddenly the British war effort in the Chesapeake becomes much more ambitious and much more successful because now they can make the ambushes. Now they know where farmers and planters have hid away their livestock. And now they know where their smokehouses are. 
because on the one hand, you've got a greater capacity to know this landscape and to raid into it with impunity. On the other hand, you need a lot more food because you've got hundreds, indeed probably about 3,000 additional mouths to feed. And so there is this synergy between the capacity to raid and the need to raid. And this also serves the overall British goal to inflict economic pain. Because the British have figured out if you really want to hurt people who rely upon enslaved labor, you encourage the enslaved labor to leave and come and help you fight their former masters, which is exactly what happens. Uh, this is a representation done by a modern artist uh, of uh, the unit that's organized. Uh, approximately 300 young men will serve in this, and they're called the Colonial Marines. Uh, they wear the uniforms of Royal Marines. Uh, the uh, enlisted men and the non-commissioned officers are all African-American. Their officers are white men, British. This is similar to the U.S. colored troops of the Civil War where all the officers were white men. And this unit uh, was based on Tangier Island. Uh, and this is a representation of them within the background, the sort of cabins that enslaved people were skilled at building. And the understanding is that's what this refugee camp would have looked like. So they're generally taken from these, when they reach British warships, they're taken to Tangier Island. The young men are organized into this military unit. They are paid. They're given good food and clothing, better clothing than they were used to. And then they are used when on these raids to be recruiting officers to encourage other people to run away. The fact that they're showing up with firearms, wearing uniforms, nice uniforms, means that they are living, moving advertisements for you can improve your lot by going to the British. This is uh, the same artist showing uh, colonial marines uh, in action in a variety of ways. In the background, you can see a sailing ship being set on fire. Uh, the British would take uh, merchant ships that were they considered in good shape, high value, but if they felt that it was an old vessel, it was leaky, then they'd just burn it. In the middle ground, you see a British officer directing families of enslaved people to boats that will take them away to freedom. In the foreground, you see colonial marines rolling barrels of liquor together and setting them on fire. Now, the British were very keen to do this quickly before their own soldiers and sailors would break into these barrels, which is incapacitating. Now, this is a map, again, it's the Chesapeake, but it's a bit different. And I'll, oh, this, is, oh, this is 1813. And you can see everywhere there's a little flamey thing or there's a little ship, that's a place of British activity. And the, the flamey torch looking things is places where they made shore raids. And you can see the raids are pretty much limited to the shore and fairly evenly distributed from north to south in Chesapeake Bay. Now, if we go to 1814, you can see there are a lot more of these flamey torch images, so a lot more raids, and they're concentrated. They're concentrated in two valleys. One is the Potomac, okay, northern neck of Virginia, and then the southern of Maryland, and the Patuxent, which is the next valley to the north, entirely within Maryland. 
Now, what do these two valleys have in common? If you go up to their headwaters, well, if you go halfway up the Potomac, you're going to be at a place called Washington, D.C. If you go to the headwater of the Patuxent, you're also very close. So what's going on here? The British are using this advanced military capacity they have, thanks to these former slaves, to target the northern neck of Virginia and southern Maryland. They are doing so because these are regions that have a majority black population, so they can recruit more people, and they are the gateways to Washington, D.C. What they are doing is they are using the intimidating power of their more effective raiding to, in effect, demobilize the militia. Militia are just local white men, have virtually no training, they've got some firearms, they are supposed to be the front line of defense. They are overwhelmed. And so most of them are taking paroles from the British that allow them to just go home and be farmers. The British have said to them, we'll leave you alone if you'll take a parole. That means we don't burn your barn. We'll only take some of your cattle. We'll still take your slaves from you, but that's the deal. And a lot of people in southern Maryland and some even in northern Virginia take that deal, which means there's no more militia resistance. So the British are trying to eliminate that militia resistance on the approaches to Washington for the time when they will just suddenly try to throw the knockout punch, which brings them to Washington. Now, this is an image of the British uh, sacking Washington, D.C. They did not burn the whole city. They burned selected buildings, including the celebrated public buildings, like the White House and the Capitol, and on the right here, a printing press, because they didn't like what American newspapers wrote about them. You look at this image, and they're all white faces. And so the colonial marines are not represented here, when in point of fact, there were a couple of hundred colonial marines in this operation. Now, finally, to conclude, this is an image that's produced a year after the war ends by a man named Jesse Torrey, who was an American critic of slavery. So there were Americans who were very critical of slavery, who felt that it was a contradiction of what the country should stand for. And he produces this image as a commentary. What you're seeing in the background is the ruined Capitol building the two wings, and then the hollow place where there had been a dome in between. You can see it's scorched by flames. Now let me call your attention to how commentary is woven into this image. In the upper right-hand corner, you see two angelic figures, one of them holding a pole with a liberty cap on it. So this is to suggest that essentially God's watching. God's watching over America. But he's not happy with what he's seen, according to Jesse Torrey. If we go to the foreground here, the right foreground, you can see there are a ragged group of African Americans held in chains, while a couple of white men, one of them is gesturing toward the Capitol building, and the other is 
watching over the enslaved. Washington, D.C. was a prime place for assembling enslaved people who had been bought from farms and plantations in the countryside. They're brought to Washington, D.C. They're assembled into groups called coffles, and then they're taken to the Deep South. Jesse Torrey is a great critic of the domestic slave trade within the United States. And he produces this image to say, the capital burned because Americans have committed the sin of keeping people in slavery. So it's a reminder that not everybody is supporting the slave system. It has critics within who are working to try to end it. Thank you very much. So I've ended on the early side, uh, so you can either just rush for the doors <laughs> or you can ask questions. Yes? After the war, uh, they're, they're kept together for about a year and a half because the British don't know whether the peace will hold. And they knew how effective they were at, um, at intimidating Americans and at fighting them, especially in the South. But after about a year and a half, the British say, you know, we think the peace will hold now, and we want to save money. And they were demobilizing most of their troops by that point. And so they were demobilized, and they were mostly sent to the island of Trinidad, where they're free people. They're given land, uh, and they prospered there. So of, of the different destinations where uh, former uh, runaways went to, Number one is Nova Scotia. Number two is Trinidad. Those who go to Trinidad make out a lot better. And their descendants are still there, and they're a distinctive ethnicity within Trinidad, which has many different ethnicities. And they're called to this day the Americans. Okay, the A is dropped off. The C is turned into a K. They're the Americans. And I've met their descendants. I, I, some of them I've met in London. I've met uh, one who lives in Atlanta. Uh, and they're, they're very proud of this distinctive identity they have as this, these communities that were all settled together in the interior of Trinidad. Yes? Yeah, it's quite significant in a couple of ways. Uh, war is always ultimately political, right? So you're, you have to sustain your own people's will to fight, and you're trying to deflate the will to fight of the other side. The war had been controversial in the United States from the start. There, there had been many Americans a minority, but a substantial minority, who felt the war was the wrong war against the wrong enemy at the wrong time when the country was not prepared for war. And many of them feel this so strongly that there are some of them who are helping the British when they can. And so um, the British are trying to increase that sentiment. 
by, and they, they show a great deal of discrimination when they're raiding. They try to find out what the politics are of people. And if they are the people that support the governing party, um, who called themselves Republicans, it's not the Republican Party of today. It's a different Republican Party. It's the Republican Party of, of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. That Republican Party is running the war. Their critics are Federalists. So it's a two-party system with the Republicans and the Federalists. And the Federalists uh, are saying to the British, we're not your enemies. And so the British would identify and say, okay, well, you're a Federalist, so we're not going to take your stuff from you. We're just going to take it from the Republicans, who are the majority in these areas. So it's very political what they're doing. And as it goes on, and more and more Republican families are suffering, there are some of them are saying, What's going on? Why aren't we being defended? Why are our troops up invading Canada? Why aren't they here defending southern Maryland and Virginia? And the British are doing this. It's all very calculated. And when, the Washington, when, when they capture Washington and they burn the White House and the Capitol, that's not a good look for a government. <laughs> no, you, you can't defend your own capital? The British invading force was only about 4,500 men uh, because there were virtually no professional American soldiers there to defend the city. They were all up invading Canada. So uh, James Madison did many wonderful things, but running a war effort was not one of them. <laughs> yes? Uh, it, it, okay, that, that's a trick question, uh, but I can answer it anyway. In Britain, it is not an act of parliament that frees the slaves, within Britain. Okay? What frees them is a court decision uh, called the Somerset decision, which happens in 1773 that applies only to England. And then there is a subsequent legal case that applies, and then I, it's sometime in the 1780s, it applies to Scotland. In both of these cases, what they say is, under natural law, which is an entirely imaginary thing, uh, there is, there's no justification for slavery. It's, it's all theoretical. It's that in natural law, everybody's more or less equal, and there's no justification for slavery. So how does slavery exist? There must be statutory law. There has to be a sovereign legislature that passes a law that says these people can be held in slavery and these are the punishments if they escape and so forth. Okay, so you need statutory law. And all these court decisions said is there's no statutory law in Britain, so therefore you can't have slaves here. It does not apply in the colonies. So... Uh, Britain is still, in the War of 1812, it's not like they're running freedom for everybody. Um, they've got thousands of enslaved people working on sugar plantations in the West Indies, uh, including on Trinidad. So when the, uh, the colonial marines will be settled there, one of the reasons to settle them there is to say, We're, we are kind of expecting you to keep the enslaved people in line. Okay, now they're never called on to do that, but the British are thinking that if you have some free people who are of color, they can help you to keep other people of color in slavery. And there are precedents for this 
on other islands in the West Indies. The French and the Spanish were quite good at using free black militias to control enslaved people. So I know that's a very long answer, but it's 1830s when, the, when Britain will say to the West Indies, okay, you sugar planters have to give up your slavery. Yes, but not fully compensated. And they weren't happy about it. <laughs> yes? I'm curious about how, Well, it's the interesting thing. I, I, when I started doing this research, I assumed that it would be, that they would be running away to the tidewater so that they could get on the ships. But I found, in fact, escapes from Piedmont go down during the war. Now, why do they go down? Because so many militias from the Piedmont are being mobilized and being sent down to serve in the tidewater so that there are armed white men on the roads in much larger numbers on a regular basis than is the case in peacetime. So the irony is this war makes it easier for tidewater slaves to escape, but it makes it harder for Piedmont slaves to escape. Yes? Yes, yeah. Uh, I assume so. So I, I met a fellow who runs the Afro-Nova Scotian Cultural Center, which is in the town of Preston, and I asked him, are there any Shanklins there? And he said, no Shanklins, but I think they changed their last name to Smith, as in, <laughs> okay. Yes. Yep. Uh, yes, and that's one of the things that it was most difficult for me to find documentation on. The British liked to tell um, the runaways who reached them that they could see from the ships blacks hanging from trees who had been captured. I don't think that's true. I think that's just something the British said. Now, why don't I think it's true? It's because uh, any Virginian that loses a slave through war violence could go to the state government and get compensated. And the fact that they, there are no cases of this, there's only one case of it during the war, uh, suggests that when blacks are captured, they're not being killed. There is some other evidence that says they're being whipped within an inch of their lives, and then they're being sold far, far away so that their expertise in leading people to British warships will not be available in Virginia. Yes? I'll, I'll repeat the question, yeah. Or you go ahead, you've got a microphone now. Uh, at the, 
the time that the British are relocating these slaves to Nova Scotia, is this the same time that the British were persecuting the French, who would then migrate to Louisiana and become the Cajun population? Uh, no, that's an earlier generation. So the, the dispossession of the Acadians happened in the 1750s. Uh, and by this point in time, um, the, there are lots of French Canadians in Quebec, because the Acadians are from what's now Nova Scotia. And they're dispersed, and some of them end up being Cajuns in Louisiana. Uh, there are many more French Canadians who are Quebecois. They live in Quebec. And uh, after Britain conquers Canada uh, in the late 1750s, early 1760s, they work out an understanding with them. So the French Canadians are actually very active at helping the British defend Canada against American invaders. Because if they're given the choice between being governed by these Protestants from the south and being governed by the British Empire, which has reached an understanding with the Catholic Church, they prefer the British Empire. The gentleman right there had a question. Oh, right here on the left. He, this gentleman here. And then we'll get him. Everybody will get a chance. We've still got time. Do you also find evidence that there were slaves who fought for the Americans against the British? Uh, not slaves, but free blacks who did. Um, it was official um, policy that the U.S. Army was not supposed to recruit blacks. But the thing is that there were many people who were of mixed race in the United States at that time. And recruitment officers are having trouble filling the ranks because being in the U.S. Army at that time wasn't really much better than being in the British Royal Navy. So there are recruitment officers who say, looks white enough to me. <laughs> now, the Navy had no such restrictions. The Navy is recruiting a substantial number of free blacks. So they're serving on old Ironsides, the USS Constitution, all of the, almost all the warships of the United States had free blacks serving on them. Okay, now a great majority of African Americans in the United States at that time are held in slavery and n no white official or officer wants to encourage slaves to serve. But there's approximately 10% of the black population in the United States who are free and they are serving uh, a lot of them in the U.S. Navy or on privateers who are private warships for quite substantial numbers of free blacks then. So you have a very complex situation where you've got a lot of free blacks who are fighting for the United States. And then you've got a lot of former enslaved people who have run away to the British who are fighting against the United States in the same war. Yes. Just a second, there here comes the microphone. James Monroe became president in 1817. It was inaugurated in March of 1817. Uh -huh. Had things become pretty well settled by that time? Uh, yeah, the, the war ends in early 1815. The peace treaties negotiated uh, in late, it's concluded in December of 1814. But the war is not over till the treaty gets ratified. 
and it gets ratified by uh, the Senate and the President in February of 1815. So by the time Monroe becomes president, uh, the, the war is behind, and Americans want to remember their victories and forget their defeats in the war, and Monroe is a beneficiary of that because he had ended the war as both Secretary of State and Secretary of War, which was the equivalent of Secretary of Defense today. There's a question way in the back there. Yes, how did, how did this affect Virginia politics? Uh, like county courthouses, Richmond, and uh -huh. how did this might contribute to events that led up to the Civil War? Well, by, by oh, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to be here another two hours, so get comfortable. Uh, well, let me take the first part of it. Uh, Virginia is overwhelmingly a Republican state, again, old-style Republican of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and so it's, it's pretty pro-war, which is one of the reasons why the, the British are targeting Virginia. It's the place where presidents come from in those days. Jefferson had come from there. Madison's now president. Uh, Washington had come from it. So they, they think this is the real heart of American politics and power is Virginia. Good reason. Virginia was the largest state, the richest state, the most powerful state. So you heard Virginia, the notion is the rest of the country will probably end up feeling the pain too. Uh, so it doesn't end up really changing politics, though by the end of the war, uh, a lot of Virginia politicians are saying, you know, we got a Virginia, he's president, and he's not defending us very well. Um, if we can't be defended by the federal government, uh, when we got a Virginian as president, what's going to happen when we elect somebody who's not a Virginian? So Vir white Virginians' confidence in the federal government goes way down as a result of the War of 1812. And after the war, then, we see a much more um, concerted push by Virginia's leaders to say, we only want a weak union. Uh, we don't want a union that's going to interfere in any way within the state of Virginia. They can deliver the mail, uh, and they can have a navy, and, but that's about all we want a federal government for. And so that will then contribute to the coming of the Civil War. It means they're going to be very watching this federal government very nervously. And if they ever think that some Yankee's going to be elected president who is not sound on the doctrine of leaving states alone, uh, then they reserve the right to leave the Union, which they exercised then in 1861. Yes? What was the uh, state of race relations? Uh, it's it's complicated. It's, it, you, you, you can find the whole range of things. You, you could find situations where free blacks and free whites are fighting each other. More common is that free blacks know that uh, a lot of people watching them and uh, that they're not supposed to have firearms unless they got a license from the court and they're not supposed to strike a white person. Uh, so mostly free blacks are just kind of trying to hunker down and avoid calling attention to themselves and avoid friction. 
And you find situations where free blacks and free whites of the lower class are gambling together and stealing stuff together. And you find the whole range. You, you find f common free whites and free blacks going to church together and not stealing things. So you can find you know, the whole range of human behavior among free blacks just as you can find them among common whites at that time. And, and there's some overlap, some of it positive and some of it not so positive. It's not like it will be after Reconstruction, where the race line gets drawn in a harder way uh, than is the case in slavery. The thing in the slave condition is black people, white people are next to each other all the time. Right? And you, you can't segregate things like steamboats because masters want to have their slaves on the steamboat with them tending to them. So there's much more integration in a slave society than there is when emancipation's been forced on people. And then they say, OK, well, how, well, what do we do next? And then they come up eventually with, let's enforce what's called Jim Crow or strict segregation. And so that's, that's of the future post-1870s in Virginia. Uh, okay, somebody who hasn't asked a question before. You've asked one, you've asked one, you can go. Okay. Is it on? Okay. Go ahead. Would you therefore claim that uh, racism was an outgrowth of the Civil War? Uh, I would not so claim. Uh, I would say there's plenty of racism before the Civil War. It's just that how do you, you, know, how do you uh, organize society? Okay, you can organize society, a racist society with slavery, uh, but how do you organize society if you still uh, believe that one race is superior, but you've been barred constitutionally from keeping that supposedly inferior race in slavery? And then you come up with Jim Crow. Yes? Yeah, how did our military uh, fare in the Battle of New Orleans? I'm sorry, what was the question? How did our military fare in the Battle of New Orleans? Uh, very well. Uh, this, this was the most one-sided victory in American history, probably. There were 2,000 British casualties and 71 American. Um, you know, we, we like to believe that the British were idiots all the time in combat, that they would wear nice red uniforms and clump together in an open field and put signs around their necks saying, please shoot me. Uh, <laughs> while Americans just stood behind trees and stone walls and complied with the signs. Um, it actually comes pretty close to that in the Battle of New Orleans, except for the sign bit. Um, so there were a lot of cases during the War of 1812 where uh, British troops are actually behind the trees shooting at the Americans in the open fields and winning battles in Canada. But in New Orleans, the British military commander marches his troops in these nice tight columns straight at entrenched troops of Andrew Jackson with heavy American artillery, and it is a bloodbath. Well, how could we do so well there and have no defense for our capital? Uh, because British commanders are not always idiots. <laughs> Every now and then you get an idiot. The thing is, that works on the American side, too. There were plenty of American idiots in this war that did really stupid stuff, mostly up in Canada, and we have all taken an agreement not to think about that anymore. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, we've got a question right down here, and he's got a good loud voice, I bet. But we've also got a microphone. Um, how many blacks were free by the time of the Civil War, and how were you identified so that you were known to be one and not an escaped slave? Okay, depends on where you're at. Uh, I cannot tell you the absolute number uh, as of the Civil War. I can say as a proportion of Virginia's population, it's probably about 7% in 1861 are free blacks. And you would have to have a pass with you. If you're a black and you're moving around on any road or path, any white person can stop and say, where's your pass? And you'd have to show them a document that comes from your county court saying this, this person is certified as a, as a free person. So it means that you're, you have to look over your shoulder because you, you could be stopped by anybody at any time in that situation. Yes. Yes. Going back a, a few years, I understand a, a phrase or clause in one of our founding documents prohibiting slavery was removed in a great debate in Philadelphia. Can you, can you talk to that? Well, uh, that's wishful thinking that there was, you know, something that would have ended slavery in the Declaration. What there was in, and it was put in by Jefferson in his original draft, was um, much more explicit criticism of the slave trade uh, as being something imposed by the British on the colonists against the colonists' will. Well, there were other congressmen going, you know, we've kind of been profiting from this thing, and um, maybe we don't have a lot of credibility if we say it's just the British fault. And then they also say, you know, there's some, a lot of New Englanders have been profiting by trading in these slaves. And so the less we say about slavery, the best in this document. Uh, so that's all that was about, was because the, the Declaration of Independence is a wartime document that's meant to build support for American independence overseas and at home, and it needs to seem plausible. And so what they do keep in there is they, they accuse the British king of uh, encouraging slaves to um, rise up in rebellion. And they, they do have a very limited discussion of how the British have, have stopped colonies from trying to stop the slave trade. But it's much less than Jefferson wanted to put in there. Yes? Was there any degree of remigration of the escaped slaves back to the United States, particularly in the North, after the war was completed or over? Which war are we talking about? 1812. There are, I found in Virginia, four or five cases of uh, runaways who chose to come back to Virginia. And it seems to be because when they escaped, they hoped that family members would be able to come with them, and they weren't able to get out. So then they have, have a very tough decision to make. Do I leave my family, wives, children, parents, or do I go back to them? There are about five who did this. Now, the U.S. government sent agents to Bermuda and up to Nova Scotia to try to persuade the thousands who had left to come back, and they are able to persuade one woman <laughs> who was elderly, and, and I guess her family was back there. One more question. Okay. 
the farmers who accepted parole, were there any ramifications after the war in Virginia? Uh, so the question is about um, uh, those farmers who are in the militia in southern Maryland, northern Virginia, and who take paroles from the British. Now, what a parole is, is it says, I'm a prisoner of war, and I cannot serve until I'm exchanged. Well, the British are taking hundreds of these militiamen captive because many of the militiamen are just going down to British headquarters and say, I surrender, because they want a parole so that they won't be drafted into the militia and they can tend to their farm. And so this is upsetting to federal officials and to militia officials who don't like the fact that people are going and surrendering themselves. So they try, there are a few cases where they say, we're not honoring those paroles, you're still in the militia and you still have to answer these emergency calls. But the war ends fairly shortly thereafter, and, and these prosecutions are stopped. Okay, thank you very much.